right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, welcome in. Another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson. Matt Tate joins the show in about 25 minutes from right now to talk some KU football, a little KU volleyball talk with Matt as well. Lamar Jackson led a crazy comeback last night. The Colts were up 22-3 to with three minutes left in the third quarter. And then, on top of it, it was, I think, 25-9 to with 12 minutes left or so in that game. And he came back both times. They ended up getting the ball in overtime. They go down the score touchdown. He went 37 of 43 passing for 442 yards and four touchdowns. This is a guy who there's been a lot of criticism about, you know, overall he's a great weapon. He's a he's a really good quarterback, worthy MVP from a couple years ago. But can he go from being, you know, a guy who's just really good to being somebody who when your team is down at the end of the game or when you're in a passing situation take that step. I don't think there can be any questions anymore. And I know for some people, you know, they're going to sit there and wait and say, well, I want to see him do it in the playoffs, right? The, the bar always gets raised one step higher as soon as somebody who you doubt accomplishes something. And I've, I actually kind of was there that like, I thought Lamar Jackson was this unbelievable player, but you know, you did question about if you get in a situation where you're down 10 or 14 in the fourth quarter, is he going to be able to come back? Because I think before this year, that hadn't really happened. And so that's okay, right? We've seen teams win with bad quarterbacks. We saw the Ravens win with Trent Dilfer. We saw them win with Joe Flacco, right? Although he, the way he played in the playoffs, I mean, he was basically the best quarterback in the NFL if you just bottled up what he did in that playoff run. Um, but we've seen teams win with worse quarterbacks, so it's not as if you couldn't win a Super Bowl. But the question was, if you got down in a game, could you come back and over the course of a long season, over the course of a playoff run, you're probably going to have to do that. Well, until this year, that hasn't been unlocked. And I'll say now, like after, I mean, you could have probably got there after the Chiefs game. They're down two scores to the Chiefs in that game. and They end up coming back and winning. And I get it. It's a little bit aided by the Chiefs mistakes. He does it again. Leading comebacks through the air, 37 of 43 for 442 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions to go with his 62 yards rushing. He is showing this year that he is an elite passer as well and that he can lead teams late in the fourth quarter for the comeback. I mean, so far this season, this is crazy. He's fifth in passing yards, fifth in passing yards per game as well. He's fourth in yards per attempt. He's averaging over nine yards per attempt. And the fact that he does that in the clutch, 
having to come back for the second time this year when you add on to the Chiefs game down by multiple scores in the fourth quarter and winning both games, he's hitting that next level, which kind of brings me to this. You know, Patrick Mahomes is still the best quarterback in the league by my estimation and I think by most people's estimations. And if you go look at total QBR right now, Patrick Mahomes is number one. He has a 75 QBR, and he's slightly in front of Matthew Stafford, who has a 74.9. So Patrick Mahomes is still leading the NFL in QBR. But this is what's interesting. That 75 QBR for Patrick Mahomes, even though it's leading the NFL, it's the worst QBR of Patrick Mahomes' career. He was in the high 70s last two years. He was at 81 his first season in the NFL. So you have the, you know, it's not, is it the worst version of Patrick Mahomes or is it that because all these things are so close together, right? Like 75 to 81, that's not an ultra big variance. It's not like you dropped from 81 to 68. Is it that extra six points has to do with, you know, maybe not having as good of number two receivers or the offense just being out of sync or the defense having better game plans now, all those things that leads to that. But the point is, even if Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL right now, when you see guys like Lamar Jackson continuing to progress, you see Justin Herbert continuing to progress and make big plays and come up big on fourth downs for the Chargers. And you see some of these young guys doing these things. It makes you wonder if we're heading into a world where instead of Patrick Mahomes just being, you know, the number one quarterback with a bullet or maybe Patrick Mahomes being in that top QB tier all to himself and then it's a drop off and then it's tier two or even if you included like Aaron Rodgers winning MVP last year obviously you'd throw him in there instead of that being the case like maybe tier one and tier two are a little crossing over maybe they're mushed together a little bit more maybe they're in the same tier it's just Mahomes would be 1A and the others would be 1B, 1C, 1D right where there's slight separation in the tier, but it's no longer tier, gap, the other guys. And and I don't know how much of that has to do with the other guys' improvements versus the Chiefs' offense showing a bit of trouble at some point this year. And I, I hate to even call it trouble. They're averaging 31 points per game, right? But you're having turnover woes. Patrick Mahomes is having interception woes. But also, like, how many of his interceptions are actually his fault? Might be another way of looking at it. Like, there was the one to Tyreek Hill last game on the little crossing route that he just couldn't catch. It ends up as an interception. Um, the other interception by uh, Rousseau, just a great play by a defensive lineman, right? You have the interception against the Chargers on a slant pass that's wide open. The receiver doesn't have a DB within seven yards of him. He just can't catch it. It deflects off him and it's intercepted. So you do have a couple bad interceptions on Patrick Mahomes, and those are things you have to correct when you look at the end of the Ravens game, when you look at the end of the Chargers game. But also, it's not all his fault. I just wonder if, with defenses showing this game plan that we've seen be a common theme in Chiefs' losses of late, and not everybody can do it, because that's part of it too. You hear all the time, like, Okay, this is what you do. You're going to play two high safeties. You're going to prevent the big play, and you're going to play man-to-man around those two high safeties. 
right? So you're going to be physical, you're going to play bump and run, and then you're going to have the two deep safeties to stop, you know, Tyreek Hill going deep to where he's basically getting double covered. And, you know, a lot of teams do that, but it doesn't always work, right? Like, I'm sure the Eagles did that a lot, but they still didn't force the Chiefs to punt once, and they gave up 42 points. You, you have to combine the game plan with, really good players on the defense in order to stop one of the best offenses in the league. That's how it works. But the Bills had that. And so when you're playing those top teams, you have to figure out an answer to that. And the Chiefs still have yet to do that. So when you combine now a, you know, it's not a, a sizable hole in the Chiefs games. It's not an, a, a hole that can't be overcome. But when you combine just the slightest weakness with the offense right now and the inability Right now, it's still, I think, the thing that Mahomes is working on, working more in the pocket and being able to dissect you more and, and being content consistently on those short slant routes as opposed to trying to make the big play every time. When you add that to now all of a sudden these other young guys and these other quarterbacks are finding more success and hitting that next level, maybe the gap from the Chiefs quarterback position to some of the other best quarterback positions in the league isn't as wide as more. And when you combine that with a bad defense – and still looking for that receiver number two. Who knows? Maybe Josh Gordon can be that. And getting out aggressive on fourth down conversions by other teams and some of these uh, turnover issues. Then all of a sudden, you end up with what the Chiefs are right now, which is a below-average football team. But we'll see if that continues on through the rest of the season. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, joins the show in about 15 minutes. That time of day, on a Tuesday, we talked to Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So, Matt, what was the bigger disappointment? Was it finding out that the IARP timeline that was teased that maybe we would get, you know, a notion of when this thing's getting closer to wrapping up? Was that the bigger disappointment, that we didn't get that? Or was, I don't know, the Broncos' performance against the Steelers on Sunday? Which was more disappointing for you? Uh, you're too good. Um, <laughs> I, I got to say the IARP thing because I expected the Broncos to come back to earth a little bit. Um, in fact, I was, uh, uh, we're, we're in the process of uh, moving and getting ready to buy and sell house. And so I was spending a lot of time kind of trying to pack some things up and clean some things up, but also um, keep one eye on that Broncos game. And, that eye showed me for a long time that it was like 24 to 6 at one point or something. And I was like, okay, I I can focus fully on the task at hand now that game's over. And then I found out later it was a much, much closer ending. They almost tied it up late. So, um, yeah, not not surprised that that one happened, even though I thought they should have won it. But they're just so injured, man. So we won't make this a Broncos show, but I'll say the IARP thing. Largely because, number one, I was curious, like most Kansas fans, um, or probably all of the Kansas fans, uh, as someone who's covered this thing nonstop for what seems like five years now, I was curious to see how close we might be to the end of it, or at least some kind of concrete update. Um, so, so that that factored in for me. But then on top of that, I don't think anything I wrote recently kind of spelled out that that was coming because I certainly wasn't told that, and, and you know nobody knew what this update was going to look like exactly. But I do think that I, I kind of walked away feeling like I might have 
misled some people into thinking with some of my stories that that was what was going to to be released yesterday and so you know then they were disappointed and and then i looked like i i steered them wrong you know so that was a, a double whammy for me i really wanted to know where the thing's at um but i also felt bad if people read into what i wrote and expected to see the same thing you know so i uh, the whole thing was weird, man. I mean, I, I know they're doing it for transparency, and that's great. But I think the transparency part of that would be would be much better if it was in real time, right? Like, now you have this timeline, so next time there's some sort of correspondence or some sort of request or some sort of activity, then go ahead and update the timeline. And, you know, you don't have to do it the same day, but today's October 12th. Let's say they, they, there was a letter or something sent or received today. Well, by the end of the week, you should be able to say October 12th, this happened. Timeline's up. Timeline's updated, because right now that thing is updated, quote unquote, updated, air quotes, updated through August 30th, and, and August 30th was ages ago. Right now, so <laughs> as much as they're updating us on where it's at, I, I don't, I don't really feel like that brings us fully up to speed on where it's at, because August 30th was so long ago, and 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 also if if nothing's happened between August 30th and now, which is very possible, then it just further makes you think this thing may never get done and you know nobody wants to hear that either so i get the transparency thing of it but it it, it seems a lot more i don't know uh bureaucratic than than it does actually wanting to be transparent with what's going on out there because it just none of that really gave great detail none of that really said anything other than see we're doing our job here's a record of it i mean i don't know i i'd be pretty frustrated if i were if I were anyone involved in that process. I think part of the issue, too, is just that because this is like the first round of schools are in this IRP, it's not like we can go and be like, hey, out of reference, let's go look at some team who was in there in 2017, and we can compare and contrast the timelines and where it says, okay, it says they just did this step, and it looks like in that other case they did that step there, and it's that, that means it's this far away typically from being done we don't even have like the reference point to be able to do that and so uh, the way I took it when when you initially you know reported on it and everything wasn't that we were going to get like a, a release date where it was going to come out and say yeah we're going to have the decision for you on October 17th at two o'clock right. I, I right, kind of right, right. took it as like maybe we'll get a better idea of where they're at and like maybe one of the steps in the process on the timeline will say now it's just in for final review or something like something that. Something like that. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that that was, you know, I, I totally agree. There's no way they were going to be ready to tell you a date or probably not even a month, you know. Um, but, but you would like to know, like, because, again, right now, you know, August 30th is where they're at. But what does that mean? How much, how much more time is, is required? No one knows because it's all brand new. And so to cut them some slack. They don't even know because it's brand new, right? So, you, you know, you want to be fair and, and, and look at it that way, too. But, but yeah, I don't think that was much of an update at all. I mean, um, a lot of what was on that timeline was stuff that we and others have already reported, too. You know, so, so there, there was not a whole lot that, that really came out as, as new. Maybe a few details, but, but again details is not even a strong enough or it's too strong a word because you know more just sort of like um a little bit of a a tease at to well this happened but we're not going to tell you what it is or what it meant or what it said so okay well good it happened thank goodness i'm glad we all know that now what it is <laughs> what it says what it what it does 
Nobody knows, but we know it happened. So, hot damn, here we go. Let's move forward. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, it's obviously very easy to criticize that whole process because it has taken so long. But, but I, I do think that part of the reason they made those rule changes in August for um, this timeline and this update to be, to be published and, and made public was not only for transparency, but also to expedite the whole process, to, to move things up, to, to get things moving faster. And I, I don't know that I came away from what happened yesterday feeling like that's happening. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but, but that's kind of the point, right? Like, if we don't know, then, then how do we know? So I think that they, they are continuing to try to take steps in the right direction to make that thing work, but um, they, they seem to be very, very small steps and nobody really knows how to how to maneuver or navigate or, or move forward with the whole thing because it's all brand new and and that's tough on both sides. We're talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. All right, something that does have a definitive date is the beginning of the college basketball season, less than a month away. KU plays Michigan State on November 9th. You've been going through your series that you do every year that's always a fun read with the, the will he, won't he, might, series and as you've been going through that I think the one today was Jalen Coleman lands is there any players that trying to evaluate over the course of this series you're having the toughest time uh figuring out their variants like maybe a player who has you think the widest variance of what those different columns could be yeah that's a good question thanks for bringing it up too I really I think I've done it three or four years in a row now and I really, I really like it. It's a fun, it's a fun thing. I actually got it since this whole thing started with the Denver Broncos. I actually got it from uh, from either a news station in Denver or maybe it was a maybe it was the Denver Post. But it was it was I saw it and it had it had uh, it had the those those taglines. He will, he won't, he might. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then and then I looked at it closer. Well, what it was was. Um, it was like an inactive list or, or an injury report. So this guy will play, this guy won't play, this guy might play. And so um, I kind of modified it from there and, and um, made it my own thing. And, and I, I, you know, I think there's value in what they did, of course, because, you know, on game day you want to know who's going to play and who isn't. So that's part of it. But I, I like mine just as well because I think it allows me to kind of have a little bit of a, 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 you know, sort of an opinionated eye on, on what guys may or may not do. And, and it's obviously, there's some, uh, there's some, some, what would you call it? Some educated guessing behind it. Like, I, you know, it's not that I'm just purely guessing on all of those things. I mean, obviously I talk to people all the time and, and get some insight into what's going on in practice and things like that. So, you know, there's some, there's some value to what's, being opinionated or opined, I guess is the word. So um, anyway, I, I do like it a lot, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But but to answer your question more directly, um, but what I usually do is is you know I usually sit down and just make a list, right? And here's here's the player, and then he will, he won't, he might. And some of them just fly off. I mean, you know, he this guy will do this, this guy won't do this, and this guy won't might do this, and they just they come in a matter of seconds. Then you know, writing it out is a little take some time and all that, but the, the general theme for each guy, sometimes those take no time at all. And then some guys um, you just labor over. I remember a couple of years ago uh, I, I couldn't figure out C to save my life one year, and I had to really, like, dive into some 
looking at some deep stats and just try to figure out a way to – because you don't want to take a guy like Spee and say he will continue to be one of the team's best three-point shooters. Well, no no, no kidding, right? Man, Derek, I almost cussed on the air right there. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first Matt to cuss on the I know, airways, so. but, man, it would have been a first for me. I, I, <laughs> I felt strongly about that. But, yeah, I mean, obviously that's the case, right? So you don't – I don't want them to be – I want them to be something worth reading. I want them to be something that, that fans go – Oh, okay. I might not have known that, or or whatever. You know, see, making three pointers is not news to anybody. Um, so that was one that was tough. And uh, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, right now, I have Jalen Wilson down on my list, and I don't have a will, a won't, or a might for Jalen Wilson. So I still have to put some work in on him. And I don't know if that was exactly the question you asked, but but I think that does give you a little bit of insight into you know how some of them just kind of flow and roll off the, the brain and, and just kind of come onto the page or whatever. But the others, uh, there, there's a little more difficulty. The one I'm finishing up right now, actually right before you called, was uh, I'm working on the Cam Martin one. And, and I have found this year is, is, is in some ways harder because of these newcomers. I mean, you know, these are guys that a lot of them I haven't seen play, whether they're freshmen or transfers. Um, but at the same time, they're kind of fresh meat, you know, like because you're not worried about the fourth year of speed being a good three point shooter, you know, with, with Jalen Coleman lands, anything that you might say is going to be new to Kansas fans. And so there's, there's a little bit of that in play that works to your favor too. So, um, but Jalen Wilson is the one right now that, that I think, um, I, I think his, he may be the only one that I don't have, um, fully finished. And obviously, as I mentioned, I don't even have him really started. So, um, that, that, you know, put in some more time, making some more calls and, and trying to find out a little bit more about, you know, how his game and, and things have shaped up in the off season and, and what his role might be. And, and then you kind of go from there. So it's, it's, uh, it's fun though. They, they, you know, they, they add a lot, I think uh, they give people some, something to read. That's a little bit different than just quotes and, you know, feature stories about, about guys. I mean, there's a little bit of, guesswork in there and, and a little bit of even just my eye and my opinion and sometimes that's right sometimes that's wrong sometimes it's not worth anything but it's mine so I love it and uh, they're, they're a lot of fun to do yeah and the Jalen Wilson one I mean it is tough because there's very much like you don't know what the role is going to be are you going to be the I don't know third fourth option on offense behind like David McCormick Remy Martin Ochag Baji are you going to you know, emerge as, as a second or third option. How many rebounds are you going to get if you're not playing as much of the five role as you were last? Like, there are so many questions there that I think that's a good one for maybe the widest variance of what it could look like this I, year. Yeah, um, I think so. I, I totally do. I mean, especially because there's there's now more depth at his position too, right? So right. There, you know, a lot of times last year he played because you had to play him. And that's not to say he didn't have a great year. He did. I, I thought he was very good. But there were games where if you had another option or someone else you could go to, you probably would have, and you wouldn't have played him 28, 32 minutes, you know. But but because that bench was so thin last year, there were times where, well, you left him out on the floor even though he wasn't playing all that well. And so um, I don't think that'll be the case this year. I think I think there's a – there's there's going to be a high premium on producing this year. And if you're not producing – and his coaching staff will absolutely be able to turn their heads down the bench and find someone who will, and or at least find someone who can, who can maybe go give it a shot. And then if they don't produce, then then they got a whole other dilemma. But I, I think they're they're going to be a lot more likely to to uh, try to keep guys on the floor who are who are playing hard, competing, 
and 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 producing. And uh, I think that just speaks to the depth this team has. They're 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 so deep, and it's it's uh, it's such a luxury for them because I mean half those guys he's going to bring off the bench would start at a lot of other places. Yeah. So and if if he is the widest variance guy, do you have any idea who? I mean, is there somebody who's been completely opposite of that who you think? Okay, I, I feel pretty good. Like this is just going to be what he is. Maybe it's not as high of a of a ceiling as a guy like a I don't know, uh, like a Remy Martin or something where you could be an All American. Maybe you can be, but at the very least, the floor is very close with the ceiling. Anybody who has maybe a smaller variance than a guy like Jalen? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of them that was that was pretty easy that that was Ochai. To be honest with you, I mean, I think that I think that. Part of that is because he's been around and 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 you kind of know what he is and know what he has been. But I I also think that the idea of him coming back um, really really cleared up some things. I mean he he didn't come back just to be the same guy and do the same things. I mean in a lot of ways he will be that. But I think that um, for the first time in his career he he's got an opportunity to be a primary leader. Uh, and I think that was one of I think that was the he will. I think this is his team. And and look, like David McCormick will have some ownership. Christian Brown will have some ownership. Uh, Remy Martin perhaps could have some ownership, but no one has put in the work and and earned the opportunity to say this is my team like Ojai has, um, both as as a, a teammate, but as a guy who's also played a lot, started a lot, and and produced over a, a long period of time here so uh that was that was super easy and then and then you know I'm, I'm trying to look it up while we're while we're talking but i don't really remember exactly what it was but but that was the one that jumped out as the, as the he will and and i think the i think that the others had to do with his, his three-point shooting number one um because i think his shot continues to improve and he's shown that over his career i mean his percentages have gone up he looks better. He looks more sure of himself. His shot looks better. All of those things, and that's because he's put a ton of time in on it. Um, but I think there's a real chance that he could shoot 40 percent this year, which would be a, another move forward. I mean, it would be the fourth year in a row that his three-point percentage went up, and part of that is is because of the work that he's put in. But the other part of it is because I just don't know that he's going to have to take quite as many shots. There are other guys that that will maybe get some more minutes or also will get some more shots. I mean, you know, not the least of which is, is a guy like Jalen Coleman lands, um, who, who is a 40% shooter and came in to be that, you know, so he'll get his fair share of shots. Cam Martin will get his fair shots, um, fair share of shots. Remy Martin will get his fair share of shots, you know? So I, I just, I don't know that Ochai is going to need to take the volume that he's taken in the past, particularly last year. Um, and the last time we saw him in that kind of role, was when he had two All-Americans playing the lead role in front of him, which was obviously Devon Dotson and, and, and Doak. And looking back on that team, which obviously was a great team, Ochai's role, he was just a sophomore, but Ochai's role on that team was be reliable, play defense, compete your tail off, and knock down open shots and be as athletic as you can be. And because of Doak and because of Dotson's quickness, he got so many open looks. And I think there could be some of that happening here with Remy Martin um, creating that and, and maybe even Dwan Harris. I mean, just giving him looks that are just – I mean, he can't help but make them because he's going to get so much more room than he got last year. So I, I thought Ochai was pretty easy. I, I think Christian Brown was another one that was pretty easy. 
I haven't I haven't published his yet, but but um, it's coming. And and the thing with Christian Brown is, I mean, I, I'm just incredibly high on him. I think he, and I think Self is too. I think he's I think he's got breakout potential. I think he's going to be far better than anything we've seen uh, for a number of different reasons. But but I think part of it is is his athleticism and his mindset of just I'm going to attack, attack, attack. And I don't care if that means attack the three-point line or attack the rim. I'm going to do it. And I think he's just going to be more sure of himself, um, you know, as a junior now, right? This is his This is his chance to kind of step into a bigger role, too. So I, I thought his was pretty easy and, and Ochai's was pretty easy. And, and then, you know, full disclosure, David McCormick's was pretty easy, and that's why I started with him because sometimes you just need to get one done to get the series going. And, and so the fact, that, the fact that Dave was the first guy I did this year was partly because he's a senior, but also because it, it came pretty easy too. I, I think I think he uh, I think he has a chance to, to kind of pick up where he left off and and put the the first half struggle that he had last year um, totally in the past. I think I, I just don't think I don't think I think he learned so much from that, and I think he's more confident and, and more sure of himself now, and, and is going to take that into the season and and just uh, start from a much better place. Talking with Matt Tate, Lawrence General World, for a few more minutes here. Matt, I know you've been, uh, I don't know, getting some good eye on the KU volleyball team so far this year, and uh, they've had quite the start to the season, um, continue to move up in the RPI. They're, I think, at the top 15 now in the RPI. Team has a lot of talent and a lot of young talent. I think last year, uh, more than half the roster were, were freshmen, and, uh, I mean, now you're adding in even more young players this year that are really talented uh, thoughts so far on uh, Ray Bouchard's KU volleyball team? Well, let me give you a funny story, and then I'll tell you some thoughts. Um, I went up last Friday to uh, to Horse to cover a match because number one Texas was coming to town, and so did my work on everything else I needed to do, and and got ready to go up there, and went up there about three thirty, and and I got to the door, and there was no one there, and it was locked, and then I looked at a couple other doors and there were no ushers. There were no ticket takers. There was no one there. And so I thought, huh, what did I do? And so then I looked on my phone at the schedule and it looks like they were playing Saturday, Sunday last weekend instead of Friday, Saturday, as they had been playing. So I showed up for a match that wasn't happening. And, and partly because I enjoy this team so much and I, and I love the sport. Um, so the opportunity to get a chance to cover it when it you know isn't overlapping with football or basketball or something like that, it, I'll jump on anyone I can. I mean, earlier this year I I, uh, I was in Vegas for a for a fantasy football nerd draft with my with my dad, and I took a 6 a.m. flight from Vegas, which you can imagine how easy or difficult that was to catch, and uh, and I was able to. Uh, I mean, I landed at 11 or 10.45 or something and basically went straight to volleyball. They had a 1 p.m. match that day, and I went, I went straight there to cover them. So, um, that, you know, I love the sport. I, I like his team a lot. I mean, they've put in a lot of time to kind of grind through this rebuild because when they had Havili and, and Payne and, and Rigdon and all those girls, I mean, you know, that, that's a Final Four team, right? So you're not likely to sustain that. Obviously, that's the goal, but, but it's just not likely. And so – they fell off way more than they wanted to, but I think they're on their way back for sure. Um, it, it's going to be really hard to say they'll ever get to that level again. That's not to say they can't compete for a Final Four, but just to – I mean, those are those names right there are some of the best in 
all of KU volleyball history. So um, it, it's it's hard to say that 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 will be met. But they, yeah, they've got a ton of young talent. They 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 seem to to work really well together. The chemistry seems to be um, sky high, and 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 obviously they they are understanding what what Coach, Coach Bouchard and his staff are are trying to do, and, and it, it seems to be working. I mean, that, what they did against Texas the other night, I was at a wedding, so that's why I couldn't cover that. But um, I, I, I was sad to miss it. I mean, they took them to five sets and won the first two. You, you know, you, you're going to go up. Your IPI is going to go up even, even in a loss. It's going to go up because of an effort like that. And uh, I, I think that while they were swept the next day, this is still number one Texas. And so nobody was really that surprised by that, probably disappointed, I'm sure. But um, that's a tough out to go to go toe-to-toe with those guys and and, and uh, to, to compete like that with that team. So I think Kansas is a tournament team. Um, I think there are a few teams that, that are in the Big 12 that, that you know, they'll, they'll have their hands full with. Obviously, this weekend at Baylor will be one of them. Um, Baylor's, I think, ranked 12th or maybe top 10 now. But there are some other teams in the Big 12 that if KU just takes care of business and, and wins the games they're supposed to win, then there'll be a tournament team, no questions asked, by the time that rolls around. And then, and then anything can happen. You know, it's about matchups, and, and they've got enough talent to where anybody, as Texas saw, anybody in the country is not going to necessarily want to play them, uh, especially on a, on a tournament type of environment where – you may not get a ton of time to scout them or to prepare for them or anything like that. So, um, yeah, terrific, terrific team, a lot of young talent, um, something worth following, man. I mean, because this, this team is, is only going to get better, not only in the future and in years to come, but as this season continues to progress, they're, they're just getting stronger by the, by the day. And, and if you haven't seen them, you know, I know they're on Big 12 now, and, and some of their games, I think this, the second match this week, which probably is Friday, I think it's Thursday, Friday this week, but it's down in Waco. But I think that second one's on ESPNU, so people can watch. If you like the sport, watch this team. They're a blast, man. And if you have not seen Caroline Bien, uh, I, I mean, I can't say anything more than that. You just have to watch her. She is so, so supremely talented. She's already one of the nicest kids, true freshman, um, a total weapon, and a, a really good girl and, and fun to talk to and great teammate and always smiling and, and fun to cover. And, and she's, she's so talented. I mean, she was the freshman of the year in the conference or preseason freshman of the year, and there's no doubt in my mind she's going to wind up on that all-Big 12 team when it's done, too. She's just that good. So um, if you haven't seen her, you're, you're missing out there for sure. But the rest of the talent around her is pretty darn good, too, and, and their future is very bright. Yeah, I mean, between her, Caroline Crawford, another player who was young freshman, stud player, that's that's really exciting moving forward. He is Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. You can check out all his coverage there, including that he will, he won't, he might series. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thanks, Derek. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And not only because I talked about myself a lot today, but because we even mixed in some Broncos talk, and you weren't too mean. So I appreciate it. Always have fun. Hey, Broncos still up on the Chiefs, so uh, nothing well, to talk I, You here, know, right? I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> All right, that's Matt Tate. Thanks again, man. Thanks, Derek. Take care. All right, that was Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, FM 1017. 1320 KLWN, one hour down, two to go. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? 
Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact D Johnson at gpmnow.com. That's D Johnson at gpmnow.com. All right, Kevin Flaherty going to join us in 20 minutes. We'll talk Big 12 football, KU football with Kevin coming up at 440. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. All right, let's get on to our college football whip around. Does Alabama's loss actually impact anything was my first thought as soon as that game went final. They ended up number five in the AP poll and it's crazy to me that they didn't drop further. I, I'm i not saying they should be out of the top 10 or anything, but come on, you lost to an unranked Texas A&M team who barely beat Colorado, who got beat up physically by Arkansas, who lost to Mississippi State. But no, instead, we're just going to rank A&M and act like A&M is this great team instead of just A&M playing this one good game and Alabama having some flaws this year. So they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they should. Because, I mean, if you're just basing it on roster and the five stars, do you think Alabama, if they're playing so-and-so on a neutral site, should be better? Yes. But here's my problem. So, um, like, college basketball and college football, to me, the rankings should be so different. In college basketball rankings, I tend to, I don't know, like, I, I see both sides of it, of it should be a little bit of a rewarding of what you've done who you've beaten in your resume so far. But in basketball, where it's a bigger sample size, where there's more games to be played, where, like, in basketball, if a team goes 15 of 25 from three against you, you're probably losing the game. There's not really an equivalent to that in football. I guess there's, like, hey, if my team has seven turnovers and yours has none, but that that's not, like, a realistic thing that can happen, and that's kind of based on you shooting yourself in the foot the other team going 15 of 25 from three, that is a realistic thing that can happen, and it's not really based on something you did. You could play good defense, and they just get hot from three. So it's different, and I, I tend to, on the basketball thing, find myself agreeing with times of like what Jesse Newell does in the voting, where you know it, it is kind of based on the body of work and some of the metrics, and you know if this team was playing this team on a neutral court today, well, this team would still be favored. I don't always agree with it, and I think it should probably be a mix. But in football, I actually tend to sway a lot more to the resume because of the fact that in basketball, you might have 35, 40 games, right? So you're going to have more opportunities for that to show out, and you have more chances for you know needing the body of work. Where in football, because it is a short sample, each game you could say is a short sample, but the season's a short sample. It's only 12 games. And so resume should matter to me. I remember the Alabama team... It was Nick Saban's first title at Alabama. And then the next year, they went, I want to say, 9-3. and three. And it was very much a similar team, at least offensively, to the team before that won the title. You still had Greg McElroy, quarterback, Mark Ingram, the Heisman winner. I'm pretty sure was back at running back. If he wasn't, then it was like Trent Richardson or Derrick Henry, so... You know, they were just fine there. I think you still had Julio Jones on the team. I mean, it was an insane collection of talent. It was still an unbelievable team, but they got upset a couple times. And then they went to the bowl game. I think they played Michigan and just beat the brakes off them. And there were times that year where if you were just viewing it as, are they one of the best four teams in the country? You know, if you line them up against any team in the country, 
who are they not favored against? Maybe one or two teams, maybe three if they're nine and three. But you have to penalize them at some point. Again, in football specifically, more than you do in basketball. And so because of that, I think Alabama should drop farther. But nonetheless, it doesn't really impact things. Because if Alabama wins out, they're going to go to the college football playoff. Deservedly so. You know, if they went out and they go 12-1, and you beat Georgia in the SEC title, of course they deserve to make it. So everything's still in front of them. Even if they lose another game, make it to the SEC title, go 10-2 and and upset Georgia and go 11-2, and they're making it into the playoffs. So I don't really view it as impacting anything, but it does add to how crazy this year has been that we're actually seeing teams go down. And I think more so than anything, it does a couple things. One, I think it says that Georgia is the best team in the country. I mean, they're bludgeoning teams right now by 20, 30 points. And their backup quarterback's been playing the last two weeks against ranked teams. I think they're the number one team in the country, but also it shows that even if Alabama is the number two team in the country, like clearly the top teams this year can be beaten on a bad day. And we haven't seen that really with Clemson and Ohio State in recent years in in Alabama. So that is a little different this year. And there's been a lot of comparisons to 2007. It only keeps that going, which is wonderful because 2007 was one of the most fun seasons of college football ever with the amount of chaos that there was week in and week out going on with the Alabama thing I'm confused why Penn State isn't the highest rated one loss team they're ranked seventh right now they're behind Alabama and Ohio State as one loss teams like why okay so Ohio State lost at home to Oregon Alabama lost on the road to AM. Penn State lost on the road to Iowa the closest losses were from Alabama and Penn State, but let's forget the score because all all three of those games were kind of close. If you were just ranking the opponents, Iowa's the highest. So in theory, Penn State has the best loss of the bunch. It's to the number two team in the country. Ohio State would have the next best loss, then Alabama. And on top of it, Ohio State's loss was on their home field, whereas Penn State's was on the road. And Penn State was, I don't want to say dominating that game, but they were the better team in my eyes, pretty clearly, until Sean Clifford went out. Sean Clifford, the starting quarterback, I'm not like the highest on, but he's a solid college quarterback. The drop-off from him to their backup was pretty stark. And once the backup came in, they couldn't do anything. But they were up two scores when Sean Clifford was in the game. If Sean Clifford finishes out that game, I think they win that game. And even then, you still only lost by three on the road to a team that's now number two in the country. Why are they not the the top one-loss team in the country? Now, If you want to impact and say, well, we don't know how long Sean Clifford's out, so we're taking that into account here, that's fair. But based on resume, you can't really knock them. Like, they got knocked, I I mean, the same amount in the rankings, but shouldn't Alabama's loss weight them down more than Penn State's? I don't know. That's just my thought. Uh, Also, Oklahoma, at some point, that balloon's going to pop. I don't know. Maybe this is the win that carries their momentum and all of a sudden they get it going from here and and stop having close games. I don't see that happening. Maybe they can even get through the whole regular season undefeated. The way I kind of see it, like, I wouldn't be surprised if they get upended by TCU this week. But I'm guessing they're going to either get upended by, like, an Iowa State or a Baylor or something like that. Or they're going to go to, like, the Big 12 Championship and they're going to rematch one of these teams they barely beat, like a Texas. And they're going to be PO'd from how they lost to them. And they're going to end up beating them. I, At this point, I'm not saying they won't make the playoff because I think at this point we're trending toward 
one loss is probably good enough to get you in as a Power 5 champion. I'm just, everything has been so close for Oklahoma, and it feels like eventually the balloon is going to pop. All right, this is a fun uh, thing I like to do once we get to a certain point in the season. Who is still alive to even make it to the college football playoff? And it's kind of something that you have to adjust year to year because we get a new sample each and every year. And relatively speaking, the college football playoff is still a young sample to go over. But there have been some pretty consistent rules. And these are the rules that I'm going to apply here for deciding who is still alive for the college football playoff. The first rule, and this is the one that I'm, I'm most scared about instituting for this year, each and every other year in the college football playoff, this rule hasn't really even been challenged outside of one time, but I'll, with the exception I'm going to make, it hasn't been challenged. But it might this year just because I mentioned the comparison to 2007, LSU won the national championship with two losses. Well, the first college football playoff rule is don't lose twice. We've never seen a team make it into the college football playoff with two losses. The exception to this rule I put this in parentheses for rule one. Don't lose twice unless you're the SEC champion, right? If you win the SEC, you're getting in pretty much no matter what. Maybe not if you have three losses, but you win the SEC at two losses, I feel confident you get in. And why do I think that way? Well, first of all, we just know it's the SEC. Uh, but second of all, there actually is some proof to this. Auburn, three or four years ago, is the year that Georgia and Alabama both made the title. I want to say those 2017, 2018. I don't know. I always mix up the years. Um, but into the SEC championship game, Georgia and Auburn were both in the top four. And Auburn had two losses and were in the top four. If Auburn would have beat Georgia in the SEC title, Auburn would have made the playoff because they were already in the top four before that with two losses. So the first rule, don't lose twice unless you're the SEC champ. Rule number two. I've amended this a bit. It used to be if you're a group of five team, you ain't getting in but I've amended it. Rule two now is your only chance, if you are a group of five team, is you have to A, be on people's radars from the year or years before. So like teams who are consistently good in the group of five who, you know, were aware about, it can't just be a team that popped up from six and six to now this, right? Like when we think of the best group of fives, your Boise States and UCFs and so forth. And especially if you were good last year, like Cincinnati was. And you have to play the right schedule this year, which usually means you have to play one or two non-conference games against teams who are going to finish in the top 10 to 15 from a Power 5 conference or, you know, Notre Dame not in a Power 5, but you know what I mean. So that's the exception there because Cincinnati has a chance to make it this year, but it's because both of those things. They were really good last year, so you get on the attention this year and you happen to have on the schedule games at Notre Dame, games at Indiana to help you with the schedule, and you got a little bit lucky with the schedule. The SMU is undefeated right now and beat TCU, who's in the Big 12, and TCU should finish somewhere between, I don't know, seven or eight wins or so, which might not be enough. But if TCU pulls an upset over a team like Oklahoma or Oklahoma State or Baylor, who are ranked teams in the Big 12, then all of a sudden that win, you get the little chain of events, which becomes even better for Cincinnati. All right, the third and final rule if you lose once, you need one of these to go with it because you can't lose twice unless you're the SEC champ. So if you lose once, you have a chance to make it. You have a chance to not make it, depending on what happens. So first of all, if you lose once, you need it to come against a good team. If it comes against a good team, you can get it excused. Not, I, I wouldn't say easily, but a lot easier than the alternative. 
Um, there's also kind of a caveat to this rule. If you do lose to a good team, you better hope it's not a team that's right next to you in the standings, right? So if you lose to a really good team and they're number four, you're number five because they beat you in the tiebreaker head-to-head, -head, that kind of screws you over. But like if you lose to number 12 and you're number four, that's okay. The second part of rule three is if it is not a team who's considered to be a good team, it better not be a terrible team, right? If you lose to a two and 10 team, kiss that goodbye. But if it's just a mediocre team, like a five and seven, six and six, seven and five team, it better be by a reasonable, reasonable score. Basically, you can't get blown out by a reasonable team. Like Georgia made the playoff. They won the SEC. They lost once by like 20, 30 points to Auburn, but it was to a good team. And Georgia also did part C of rule three, if you're keeping up here which is get revenge on the team that beat you, right? You could lose by 40 to a team that beat you if that's your only loss, but if you get revenge on them in the last game of the season in a conference title rematch, everybody's going to say, no, we can excuse that loss from earlier because clearly they just showed more recently that they actually are the better team. So that's okay there. So yeah, uh, either lose to a good team if you do lose once, get revenge if you do lose once, or if you lose to a mediocre team, it just better not be by a blowout like when Ohio State got blown out by Purdue, and that was their only loss, but they didn't make it. So that leaves 28 teams that I think would even have possibilities of making the playoffs. And there's a couple of these that I kind of squeaked in there, but we'll go over those in a second. From the ACC, Wake Forest still undefeated. Boston College has one loss, but it's only by six to Clemson. I don't know if they'll have enough good wins to get there, but hypothetically, you go 12-1 and one and win out, they can make it. NC State, they can go 12-1 and one and make it. Their only loss to Mississippi State, which wouldn't be a great loss, but it wasn't a blowout. And what would hold them back is that it's to an SEC team, but I already think two SEC teams are making it anyway. Uh, in the Big 12, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, alive. They're both undefeated. Baylor has one loss. They play BYU this week, so that would be a great non-con win. They win that. They win out, hypothetically. You're making it in. Big 10, Michigan, Michigan State, uh, Penn State, Iowa, Ohio State. They have a lot of teams still alive if any of them were to win out, or I guess a couple of them could sustain a loss. Oregon and Arizona State, the only teams left in the Pac-12 who have one or zero losses. SEC, because I hypothesize that you can get in with two losses, that leaves a lot of teams. Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida, Alabama, Ole Miss, Auburn, Mississippi State, Arkansas, A&M. They were to win out, win the SEC, even with two losses. Independent, Notre Dame. If they won out, you know, you'd be banking on the fact that if you're Notre Dame, Cincinnati gets the three seed and we could get the four seed, right? That you could still find a way in. But if you win out, they play a tough enough schedule. 11-1 and one Notre Dame gets you in the discussion. And then BYU. I know they have the loss, just lost to Boise State. It's not a bad Boise State squad. They're having kind of a down year for their standards. But if they went out, they're going to have the schedule, especially considering they beat up well, not beat up, but they beat Arizona State and Utah, and one of those teams could win the Pac-12, which would be a marquee win. The other one could be really good. And then you have the fact that if you beat Baylor this week and win out, like they could have some really good wins on the resume that even a one-loss BYU might have an actual chance here uh, because they played basically a Power 5 schedule. The group of five, Cincinnati is obviously the one team. I kind of stretched with these last two, and I don't know if they even apply to the rules, so I'm, I'm tempted to take them off. But SMU is undefeated. They beat TCU, as I mentioned. What happens if TCU were to like win out and win the Big 12? Then all of a sudden that becomes more important. And SMU would have to beat Cincinnati, I think, once or twice along the way. So they would have actually probably the resume. San Diego State's interesting. 
If they go undefeated, you can get a win over Boise State, who beat BYU. And if BYU wins out, then all of a sudden you get that chain of wins. San Diego State also beat Utah. What happens if Utah, you know, wins the Pac-12? Or what happens if Arizona State goes undefeated, is 12-1, and San Diego State ends 13-0, and and San Diego State beat BYU, who gave Arizona State their one loss, or... I don't know. It's a weird change. Or San Diego State beat Boise State, who beat BYU, who beat Arizona State. That's not how it should operate. You shouldn't operate with the chains because it's a very silly way of looking at things. But sometimes the the playoff committee just looks at weird incongruencies and any ways that they can connect the competition that the teams played against. So those are the 28 teams that are still alive. We'll talk more college football, specifically in the Big 12. KU football with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. He joins us next. This is RCST. I'm Derek Johnson on KLWN. That time on a Tuesday, Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joins us now on the show. So, Kevin, the big one in the Big 12 over the weekend was the Texas-Oklahoma game. And, you know, you watched the first half, and it looked like Texas was, bar none, the best team in the Big 12, and that we were going to be heading toward some uncomfortable conversations about if Texas wins out, how much is the the Arkansas bad loss going to be held against them? And then all of a sudden, Oklahoma just continues to squeak out victories. They come from behind. Who knows what they're going to do at quarterback moving forward. So what were the biggest takeaways you had, I guess, from both sides of the ball from that Texas-Oklahoma game and how that relates to the Big 12? Well, obviously, you know, you don't feel great about the uh, the Oklahoma defense with what happened in that game. You know, that was a unit that we felt like early on in the season when the Oklahoma offense wasn't really firing on all cylinders, you felt like the defense was ahead of schedule, right? Like you thought, you know, they've been the last few years, the type of team that has been relatively good on defense, you know, late in the season as things have come along, but the defense really has saved them from potentially having a a bad loss or, or two before they even got to this point, only to have Texas, you know, completely pick them apart. And even after Oklahoma took the lead in the fourth quarter, you know, Texas came right back down and scored to to tie the thing up. And so when you look at that, Oklahoma's defense maybe isn't quite as good as we thought, you know, or maybe they just had a really bad night. But the the thing that I think everybody is going to be focused on is that quarterback battle. And it's interesting, Derek, because I got a phone call from a coach today, a college coach. Everybody is so quick to hand this thing off to to Caleb Williams, and it seems like the only argument that people have for Spencer Rattler is, well, you don't want him to transfer. But this coach brought up another point that was interesting that I hadn't really considered that was, you know, Caleb Williams kind of came into ideal situation, right? You don't have film on him, really. You know, he made some plays, and his receivers made some plays that were 50-50 type plays. And so, on one hand, you look at it and you say, yes, did Oklahoma win that game because Caleb Williams came in in relief of Spencer Rattler and played out of his mind? Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the right choice is without a doubt to go ahead and go with Caleb Williams the next week. And I think that's where Oklahoma finds itself. And Lincoln Riley has been 
you know, really kind of uh, close-lipped about what they're going to do, which isn't a surprise, especially if you pay attention to the way Lincoln Riley treats things. But I think there's also an argument there that, hey, with an extra week to prepare, if you know that Caleb Williams is that Oklahoma quarterback, as a true freshman, you know, there are some things that you can do defensively. You know what you're facing. You're, you know what to prepare for, and you can prepare some looks specifically for him. It might not be as easy as just saying, okay, the quarterback job is Caleb Williams now. Yeah, I uh, I also wonder, too, like if, you know, it's all the talk of, oh, Spencer Rattler would enter the transfer portal, and it's like, well, who's to say Caleb Williams wouldn't enter the transfer portal, right? You know, because if the idea initially was, well, Spencer Rattler will just play this year and then he'll go pro, so Caleb Williams won't have to wait too long. I mean, but if Spencer Rattler keeps looking like he's looking, I don't even know if he's going to have the opportunity to, to maximize his pro potential after this season. He might have to come back another year, and then you lose Caleb Williams. Well, and, you know, you, you tie it back, and I realize it was a different time. You didn't have the transfer portal and things like that, but – you know, Kansas kind of faced a little bit of a similar thing in 2006 when Kerry Meyer got a little banged up and missed the Colorado game. They start off with Adam Barman in that game. It, it doesn't go well. And they switched to, you know, this true freshman that they really liked and kind of thought was maybe their quarterback of the future in Todd Reesing. And Reesing leads them to a come-from-behind victory against Colorado. And instead of, of saying, that's it, that's the spark, that's what we need, that next game was against Iowa State, and they played both of them. Kerry Meyer got the start. He was back to being healthy again. Uh, but they brought in Reesing every few series as well, gave him more action than he was getting before his red shirt was burned against Colorado. And, you know, it, it was it wound up not really being a thing, I think, because Reesing got a little banged up at the end of that year. But at the same time, you look at it as, Maybe that's the type of middle of the road situation that you can use to, you know, keep both guys in the saddle, so to speak, at least for right now, is go ahead and say, you know what, Spencer Rattler's going to start. He's going to continue to start, but we can't ignore what we have in Caleb Williams, right? You can't just send him back to the bench and only have him come in in goal line situations or where you know there's going to be quarterback run game. And so maybe you start getting Caleb Williams, you know, every third series or, or whatever else. And if he winds up beating Spencer Rattler out in that situation, I think that's a little bit different than just sort of handing him the job after this week. And it's also different from Caleb Williams' perspective than just saying, you know what, Spencer's our starter, you know, back to where you were before this Texas game like it didn't even happen. Talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports here. So if I gave you, right now, Oklahoma or the field to win the Big 12, what would you take? Ooh, that's tough. Because I, I think Oklahoma has the greatest potential. And I think that with Oklahoma sitting here undefeated, regardless of how they got there or how many close games they've had, Oklahoma is likely to reach the Big 12 title game at this point. They're also likely to be the best team when they reach that point. And so I, I think I would probably take Oklahoma. At the same time, I do think that there are two teams, one of them being Texas, uh, one of them being Iowa State. You know, I, we've talked Oklahoma State and, and how tough that team is to, to try and figure out. I think Oklahoma State may be just outside of that group. But I, I do think that we have two teams that uh, 
in Iowa State and Texas that, hey, if they wind up in that Big 12 title game, they are not going to be afraid of Oklahoma at all. And I think that that's going to be the type of each of those teams, if they execute and do the things that uh, that they hope they'll be able to do, either one of them is capable of knocking Oklahoma off in a one-game setting like that. Okay, so Kansas at the bottom of the Big 12, taking on Texas Tech this week, and Texas Tech winning at West Virginia. Um, West Virginia just went out and lost by 25 to Baylor. Is West Virginia KU's most winnable game, or do you think it's this week coming off the bye? I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) And and the, the, you know, we, we laugh about it, but you know, Derek, we, we've obviously been doing this for, for a couple of years now. One of the things that I feel like I've been fairly consistent in saying is typically when KU has competed well with somebody and when Kansas has had a shot at a big 12 win, it hasn't necessarily been the game that you circled on the schedule, right? It's one of those things where even when there has been a no doubt number nine team, that hasn't always been the game that Kansas has, has shown up best for. We've seen Kansas show up against better teams than Kansas state has been in recent years and play K state and just get, you know, run out of the building at times. And there have been other times where, you look at it and you say Kansas probably can't compete with K-State this year, and it's been one of the closer results. And so you look at, at Texas Tech uh, under Matt Wells, and I know that they've rebooted a lot of that program with transfers, et cetera. But at the same time, that's a program that's, that's really struggled against Kansas of late. You know, Kansas obviously won the last time they came to Lawrence in and, and one of the wilder endings that I, I think you'll ever see. At the same time, you know, the the game down in Lubbock last year was incredibly close, and and Kansas winds up blocking the game-winning field goal, and it goes through the upright anyway. And so maybe it is the sort of thing where, you know, it's just a mental thing where either Texas Tech doesn't get up for Kansas or whether Kansas plays Texas Tech with more confidence because they feel like they can play with Texas Tech. And so, you know, Sitting here, I feel like we can say confidently, or at least fairly confidently, Derek, that Texas Tech is better than West Virginia. But that wasn't the question. The question was which one is more winnable for Kansas. And I think the difficult thing there is, yes, West Virginia might be the worst team of the two, but Kansas might legitimately feel like, hey, we've got some things that we can do against this Texas Tech team to compete, and so it might actually be Texas Tech. So what is the scouting report on the Red Raiders? I mean, in what ways, I guess, can KU most capitalize, and and in what ways is KU going to be most stressed by the Red Raiders? You know, it's interesting. You know, Henry Columbia really threw the ball well, you know, their last time out, and and I think a lot of people were surprised because they felt like when when Tyler Shuck went down with the injury that, oh, here – here we go again, because Texas Tech has had some issues in the in the recent past with quarterback injuries, and and they haven't always had the kind of response from the backups and, and players like that. Now, having said that, you know, kind of like what we were talking about with Caleb Williams just a minute ago, I don't know that you can count on Columbia to come out and throw that way every game. You know, if, if he did, he... 
they might not have gone out and gotten a transfer if they felt like they already had that type of quarterback in their program. And so I do think that there's a there's a chance Kansas can uh, can stick with some of those guys. I, I do think the defensive backs have been good at times. Kansas is going to need to win up front a little bit more defensively than than they have been. And and linebacker I feel like has improved on a week to week basis. Uh, especially I think Rich Miller's starting to find a home there and, and things of that nature. But they're going to need to have a better effort from the defense than what they've had. I, I've been so impressed with this Leifold staff and, and what they've done offensively. Some of the changes and shifts that they make that are really subtle, you know, using sort of that jet sweep action with running backs as opposed to running, you know, full on um, wider or outside zone to, to try and open up some things the way that. They've been able to use Bean's legs not just for the quarterback running game, but also to to kind of give defenders an extra thing to look at and track that's, you know, maybe open some things up too. And they've done some nice things in the passing game as well and been able to hit on some shot plays. And so I think when you look at the scouting report, and I realize this is a really long answer, Kansas, I feel like, should be able to move the ball in Texas Tech. Uh, I think that... Kansas has the personnel. I think they've got the system. They're coming off a bye week where they've been able to to kind of focus on, you know, not just Texas Tech, but maybe some of the things that were, were giving them issues through the first few weeks of the season. I think where the question comes in and where you're going to look back later and say they either played with Texas Tech or they didn't is are they going to be able to hold back Texas Tech's offense? Are they going to be able to trouble – Henry Columbia enough to where Texas Tech really doesn't uh, really doesn't take off on that side of the ball and gives the offense a, a chance to win this type of game because if it's played in the twenties, I, I like Kansas's chances. If it's played, say in the thirty to thirty five range, I think Kansas has a chance to be right there. If you're talking about getting up into the forty five or fifty range, though, I just don't know that Kansas quite has the firepower to compete in that sort of game at this point. And so the defense is really going to need to hold its own in this one. Talking with Kevin Flaherty. Before I let you go, I was uh, I put this out on Twitter earlier today. Uh, Scott Oligo brought in or helped bring in 16 transfer portal players to Michigan State this year. And they've had quite the turnaround from a team that won two games last year in the shortened season to now one that is ranked in the top 10 and undefeated. And every time I, I talk to different people, whether it's yourself or – or somebody else, it seems like there's some sort of, you know, I, I don't know. It's not necessarily like a for sure Kansas is going to do this, but it seems like there's this idea circulating around the fact that KU could hit up the transfer portal this offseason, which would obviously make a lot of sense. Um, being that that would be the case, and you brought in Scott Oligo from Michigan State, I, I'm curious because I have my assumptions why it's different, and I've tried to explain that, but, but I'm curious from somebody who would know more about that what makes this different if you were to have a KU fan say, oh, no, not transfers again, and say we experienced this with Charlie Weiss with the JUCO route and it destroyed KU's scholarship numbers, why is it different with the transfer portal over what happened with Weiss? Well, a lot of times you're you're not just building you know, up your, your age in the transfer portal. It's something you can do. I mean, obviously, if you take a junior college guy – at most, you're typically getting three years of eligibility. 
and a three to be three is is more rare than you know a, a guy who's going to have two years of eligibility left. And so that's a big part of it. I mean, think about you know Kansas bringing in the Michigan linebacker, you know, this off season. You know, that's that's a guy who wasn't necessarily going to play a huge role this season necessarily. But he's somebody that if he grasps the culture, if he if he works and develops and understands the defense and things like that, that's somebody who can still be the staple or, or one of the foundations of your defense, you know, in upcoming years. And I think that's a big part of it. I think he, even beyond that, you're looking at when you're taking transfer guys, with the exception of, of maybe somebody like that, a lot of times when you're taking an older guy – it's somebody who has experience at the Division One level. And, and so when you bring in a Mike Nowitzki from, from Buffalo as a center, you knew that he was one of the nation's best centers at, at Buffalo. It wasn't that you were watching the tape and you were trying to decide, okay, he plays in this California junior college or he plays at Fort Scott or wherever. What kind of competition is he facing every week? How is he going to handle Big 12 competition, et cetera? You had a pretty good idea of what he was doing on a Division One football field. And so I think those are the two major advantages. One, you can get younger players who are highly talented that are coming in almost like redshirt freshmen or, you know, or in some cases, you know, sophomores. So they're going to be there a little bit longer. And when you are adding the more experienced guys to your program, you're doing it with, with players that you have an idea of what they can do on a Division One football field, which is not always the case with the junior college guy unless they're a bounce back who started their career in Division One, then went to junior college and are now trying to come back to Division One. He's Kevin Flaherty. You can check out all his work at 24-7 Sports. Kevin, thank you so much for the time as always, man. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right, that's Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports joining us on a Tuesday here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Two hours down, one to go. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, depending on it.